You're listening to Megiddo Radio. Megiddo Radio is a radio ministry of Megiddo Media. For more, visit our website at megiddoradio.com. That's megiddoradio.com. Good evening, everybody. It is Paul Flynn for Tuesday, the 13th of July, 2020. Thank you all for tuning in. On tonight's program, we're going to be going back to the Catechism of our Westminster Confession of Faith, and that's what we're going to be dealing with mainly, the, the larger Catechism, and looking at uh, questions, I think it was a question 21. I, I'm hoping to get to about question 29 uh, this evening. And it's going to be largely dealing with stuff that we've been dealing with before, but um, it's going to be largely dealing with positive answers to thing we did last week, or actually two weeks ago. Apologies, less missed uh, last week. Uh, it was on well the week weekend before that, and I th- thought it was probably not the wisest thing to do the program on top of that. Um, but two weeks ago, uh, we did a program, if you remember on the LGBT, and and you just see that, you know, as we do these critiques, and you look at atheism and all that, and one of the things that pops up time and time again is, why is there suffering? Why is there misery in the world? Uh, greetings, Benjamin. Uh, it's great to have you in the chat room. Um, say hi. Anybody is in the chat room, don't be afraid to um, say hi and stuff like that. And if you've got questions, uh, it's actually, when, when there's a good few people in the chat, it makes it a lot of fun. If you're not in the chat room on YouTube, that's the only place we can do it at the moment. Um, just, you know, if you're listening to this in the podcast afterwards or something like that, um, it can be great because you get a number of people contributing and a number of people <laughs> helping my uh, lousy memory at times. And also good questions that pop up, things that I wouldn't think of. And it, it makes it a lot more interactive. So if you are inclined and you, I always say the best connection probably if you don't have a good internet connection is probably something like sermon audio and this is also live on sermon audio but to my knowledge there's no um what's the word there's no chat room or anything else like that so um maybe i'm wrong maybe i'm missing out something out but there's definitely one anyone youtube and uh have it in front of me so trying to keep up with that. Now, before we get into our, our, our main topic of looking at the source of human misery and uh, shame, a topic that comes up time and time again, we need to know this as Christians. Why is there suffering in the world? From, you're going to hear it if you're, if you're involved in any kind of evangelism, if you're sharing the gospel in a culture that has lost much of its Christianity and its Christianity from the past, and and people have little to no knowledge of the Bible. Okay, and that's uh, unfortunately that's a lot of the Western world today. We're going to read through. Remember, we go through the Psalms every week, and we start off reading through one of the Psalms. Uh, today, we're going to be reading through Psalm thirty-nine, and we'll just make a few comments on it. 
and we'll try to have uh, ourselves into the main part of the program about 10 minutes into it. But um, Psalm 39, let us hear God's word and we'll ask for the Lord's uh, blessing and help before we begin here. Father, Lord in heaven, we pray, O Lord, that you would be with your people as we hear your word and may this be an encouragement and and a blessing to us and may it build us up in the truth. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 39, let us hear God's holy and infallible word. I said, I will guard my ways, lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are before me. I was mute with silence. I held my peace even from good and my sorrow was stirred up. My heart was hot within me while I was musing. The fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days, that I may know how frail I am. Indeed, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my age is as nothing before you. Certainly every man at his best state is but vapor. Selah. Surely every man walks about like a shadow. Surely they busy themselves in vain. He heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the reproach of the foolish. I was mute. I did not open my mouth because it was you who did it. Remove your plague from me. I am consumed by the blow of your hand. When with rebukes you correct man for iniquity, you make his beauty melt away like a moth. Surely every man is vapor. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner, as all my fathers were. Remove your gaze from me, that I may regain strength before I go away and am no more. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Okay, so we'll just make a few comments on Psalm 39 before we get into the main part of our program, which is looking at questions, I think it's question 21 we're beginning at today, dealing with the objects of sin and dealing with why we're in the state of misery. Now, uh, as I was looking through this earlier and thinking about this and picking off one or two, reading through one or two commentaries on this, it's very striking, the first few verses of Psalm 39. He very much is trying to guard what he's saying, and it seems like there's a buildup of frustration within the psalmist. And it's uh, the psalmist here is David. Uh, it's, uh, the, the title here, to the chief musician, to Judathan, a psalm of David. And he's very much within trying not to say something that will cause him to sin, if he does say something, he's very much conscious that whatever the frustration he's saying, before wicked men, he is muzzling his mouth because what, what will come out will not be good. I was mute with silence. I held my peace even from good and my sorrow was stirred up. And the thing is, it can become... We have times like this and there's a good example of this in the Bible of someone who had these frustrations and pent up and eventually, unfortunately, was 
released. If you look at the example of Job. Now, Job was, Job was a righteous man. Job was falsely accused by his three so-called friends. Okay. And, but Job was not free from error throughout the, the, throughout the book of Job. And one of the things he did was he tried to ferociously to defend himself. Yes, what they were saying was empty accusations, but when he got into, you could say, the defense of himself, he began, in a sense, to question God and question what God was doing in taking away his children and even having the, you know, he doesn't even have the support of his wife anymore. So you think of Job and people like that in this, because it's going to be times in a Christian life that are going to be times of frustration. And that is the wonderful thing about the Psalms. We're not singing about things that are happy clappy all the time. We're dealing with real human emotions, things that David himself, the psalmist, went through. Now, ultimately, all the psalms as well point towards the greater David, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. He faced frustrations, but there was no possibility of him ever sinning. But he endured also, we're told, temptation. It was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. In, in the second part, you can say the second part is like from verses four to six, he's very much, he's asking the Lord that he would know his, his end, the, 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 the brevity of life, very much similar in some ways to Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanity. I think even that Hebrew word vanity of vanities, hevel, is used here as well in the psalm. The brevity of life, it is a vapor, it is a puff of smoke, a puff of wind, it just, it is gone. It can be translated vanity, it just, it, it is so brief. Surely every man walks about like a shadow, verse 6, surely they busy themselves in vain. He heaps up riches, and he does not know will gather them. The, the things we gather together, the riches that we have, the, the money in our banks, the, the things we accumulate, our libraries, whatever the case may be, we don't know who one day will gather them. This life is but a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. So it's very much crying out for wisdom, very much crying out for help in the midst of this frustration. And that's why I urge all of you, when you're in the midst of frustrations, sing the Psalms. Sing the Psalms in your homes. Meditate upon the Psalms. Hear my prayer, Lord, verse 12, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent to my tears. And I'm sure many of you know and have gone through horrible things, frustrations, things where you've been, you almost feel like you're going to burst forth with anger and things like this. The psalmist is very much holding it back. Asking the Lord to, to see that he would see how brief and the brevity of this life and to deliver him as well from the reproach of the foolish that can lead to a lot of these frustrations that we face there's a time to speak. And there's also times not to speak. There's, there's times when it's wise not to speak. 
this is, and I think this is a problem. I was just uh, maybe can, can make a comment as well on social media. One of the problems with social media, we feel like we have to comment on everything. And I think we've all been guilty of this less or more. We feel like we have to talk about something and more often than not, we shouldn't. Um, a lot of times we'll remain silent when we have witnessing opportunities when we should speak up. But there are times when us voicing our opinion on absolutely everything or voicing every single frustration that pops into our heads is not wisdom. That comes with time. That comes with experience. If you're a new Christian, you're going to mess up like we all do. But learn from it. Seek counsel. And also look at godly examples around you and don't just mimic them or something like that. Be your own person, but at the same time, learn from them and learn from the word of God. Okay, so we're about 15 minutes into the program. Better go on to our catechism. So if you have a larger catechism, it is going to be question 21. You don't necessarily have to have the catechism in front of you, but I would, I would tell you, right, you don't have to have these you don't have to have this the Westminster standards as your as your subordinate standards of your church in order to benefit from them um we don't have for example we don't have the Heidelberg Catechism as our subordinate standards but everybody should read it and be blessed by it there's there's lots of catechisms out there that would you know written in in church by the church in the past to various different people that would greatly bless. Um, so get them and read them, especially, you know, people will, I used to never know how to answer this question years ago. People would ask me, you know, as a young Christian and the doctrines and all this kind of stuff, the foundational doctrines, the, that's what the catechisms are written for, for teaching, to bring out the things that we all need to know. So we're going to be on, Question 21, dealing with the, the theme this evening of the source of human misery and shame. And th this topic's come up a number of times over the last few weeks, um, basically dealing with sin and the fall. Why is life so hard on this earth? Why are there such painful experiences when you have a good God and he created everything good. Why is everything so miserable? Now, the thing is, fallen man, sinful man, is going to ignore this part when he wants to accuse God. Conveniently ignore this, but we can't get away from this and we can't understand our condition without understanding this. Sin. Sin is our problem. So question 21 of the larger catechism, did man continue in that estate wherein God at first created him? The answer, our first parents being left to the freedom of their own will through the temptation of Satan, transgressed the commandment of God in eating the forbidden fruit and thereby fell from the estate of innocency wherein they were created. So, it was the transgressing of the command of God. They were told not to go beyond this border, to go beyond this line in the sand, if you will. 
they went beyond it. They were told not to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, good and evil. And that was a test, really, of the eternal law of God, or, or the, the Ten Commandments summarized down. Because it showed a lack of love for God, and a lack of love also for their neighbor, through their transgression, they brought condemnation not only upon themselves, but also upon all represented by Adam in the Garden of Eden. Adam was not just there in his own capacity. Adam was not just there representing him and his wife. He was there representing all of mankind. So, to understand why there's suffering, why things are difficult, why work is difficult. Work is not a bad thing. Work's actually a great thing. We should enjoy our labors. We should seek to not grumble about it or all these kind of things. We should enjoy our labors. We should try to make the most of it and use it to the glory of God. But work since the fall has become extremely difficult and dangerous at times, and all sorts of things. These are results of the fall of Adam, transgressing the commandment of God and eating the forbidden fruit, and thereby fell from the state of innocency whereby they were created. God created them upright, but they sought out many inventions. So God created everything as a paradise and told them if they continued in this one thing, just don't eat of the fruit of the knowledge of tree of knowledge good and evil they weren't created with a sin nature they were created holy and righteous but they they were mutable which means they were changeable when we go to heaven those who are christians and we won't be mutable in that sense when we go to heaven because we will only have thoughts towards what's good but in that state they were mutable changeable they could sin but also weren't inclined towards sinning like we are today. Question 22. So question 22 says this, did all mankind fall in that first transgression? And this is very much the difference between what claims to be Christianity was not Christianity. What do I mean by that? You'll have, if you've been studying theology for a while um, and studying different views on salvation under that can be called Christian, you might have come across the term Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism or Arminianism. They're all different from each other, by the way. Um, or Calvinism or Molinism. Um, and largely to do with how they will view, especially Pelagianism, how they will view the fall upon the rest of mankind and the impact that the fall had upon everybody. Question 22, the answer to this is, did all mankind fall in the first transgression, the covenant being made with Adam as a public person, not for himself only, but for his pos posterity, all mankind descended from him by ordinary generation, sinned in him, and fell with him in that first transgression. So the first human being upon the face of the earth was Adam. And this is why our views of creation, this is why our views of Genesis 1 to 11 are so important. These are not secondary. These are massively important. Turning Genesis 1 into a poem or whatever else, it will impact how we view these things. It will water down 
what happened then? Because if you just see it as a, you know, kind of a parable or whatever, then you, you're, you're, you're undermining the validity of everything else in the scriptures. It's like a thread and a jumper and you start pulling it away and it unravels upon itself. So Adam was the federal head. That's what some people say, the federal head of all mankind. And all mankind descended from him, but they were represented in him. It talks about it later in the scriptures, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 down to about 19, and maybe to the end of the chapter as well. But in Romans chapter 5, you have two public representatives. You have either Adam and you have the second Adam, that is Christ. And either you are in Adam under the condemnation of the broken covenant of works, or you're in Christ and that covenant works, the works of Christ has kept the law perfectly. And what is represent what you, what, what, what God sees in you because of Christ by, because he represents you before the father is righteousness. So in Adam all die, but in Christ all shall be made alive. And there are the two possibilities. And since the fall of Adam, there's been condemnation upon all those who remain in Adam. There's no hope. There's no, ever since the fall of Adam, there's no hope for keeping of the law because of our sinful nature. We not only break it in transgressing the law of God, willfully breaking the law of God, transgressing, going beyond where we're supposed to go, but there's also want of conformity or a lack of conformity. We fall short. We're supposed to do something, but we don't. Almost think of it like a bullseye. Unless you hit the bullseye perfectly, going beyond it or falling short of it isn't good enough. They're both bad. So in this case, the first was a transgression, of course, going beyond what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to stay within these boundaries. But there's also the want or the lack of conformity to the law of God. You're supposed to do certain things and you don't. That's also sin. So, if you know, if you have certain duties, if you're a man, as a husband, as a father, it's not just enough that you haven't, you know, maybe physically hurt your children or whatever else may be. In a positive sense, you are to instruct your children, you're to lead them in family worship, you're to do, um, you're to educate them. You may, you know, I'm not saying that everybody has to homeschool or anything like that, but that, you, you know, they come home from school. If you are, if they are in a school, whatever the case may be, you help them with the homework or whatever the case may be. You're involved. There is responsibilities and you're to love your wife, take care of her, listen to her, encourage her, nourish her in the scriptures. So all of mankind fell in Adam. And they sinned in him. Because of the the nature of representation involved here, we sinned in Adam. But we're accounted righteous in Christ. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. But in the same way, Adam's sin, if we haven't been born again and we're not in Christ, Adam's sin has become our sin by imputation. It is accounted 
So in Adam, the sin of Adam is, even if you never sinned, Adam's sin brings the wrath of God upon him and his seed, his descendants. Question 23 of the larger catechism. And if anybody's in the chat and they want to ask questions, feel free. Some, you know, maybe I haven't explained things properly or whatever the case may be. Feel free to ask. Um, don't be shy. <laughs> um, so feel free to ask away. If, I mean, this might not be the best forum. Sometimes people might be a bit uncomfortable asking in a public chat. Um, again, I might not be the best person to ask, as in your minister might be the best person to ask. Um, so, but if I'm not saying that I won't answer, we get a radio at gmail.com, M-E-G-I-D-D-O, radio at gmail.com, and I'll do my best. Or even maybe a suggestion for a program. Maybe there's some aspect of these things that you're confused on. I won't mention your name or anything else like that. I've done that bunch of times over the years so um if you feel more comfortable doing it that way now question 23 in into what estate did the fall bring mankind the fall answer the fall brought mankind into a state of sin and misery sin and misery that is christian theology and it's astonishing when i hear people who are professing christians on radio or whatever else the case may be, and you'll hear the atheist make certain claims against God or Christianity, whatever the case may be. And there's a certain sense in which we don't know why specific events happen. That is true. You know, you think of the book of Job and things like that. But we also know why there is sin and misery in the world. We can't just say, aha, my neighbor Tom fell. It was because he forgot to pay his electricity bill or something like that. You can't, you can't say something like that. But there is suffering since the fall. Some wicked people in this, in time, will experience a better life than some Christians will. Or some better people, whatever the case may be. So it's not a one-to-one -one ratio of you do this, this will happen. Now, there will be perfect justice in the world to come. And there will be justice to varying degrees in this world, but not perfect justice, as we, many of us, if you live long enough, you, you know this. But we should all know when you do see sin when you are, and misery and all the horrible things that are happening in the world, you know, people asking over and over again, why does God allow this to happen? Because of sin, and God warned Adam, who represented all of mankind, that this is what would happen. And we say, oh, well, that's not fair. I didn't do what Adam did. You, you, you didn't do it exactly like him, but you sinned. There's not one person, myself included, who can say, well, you know, I'm completely innocent. My, my hands are clean in this area. No, all of our hands are filthy. We have transgressed far worse probably than Adam. But I suppose in our sense, our sin did not have covenantal significance over condemning other people. But at the same time, none of us are free from sin. 
And I would also say if people want, if people are struggling with this idea, whether it's fair or not, if it was us placed there, how long would we have lasted without sin? We're sinners. Every single last one of us. We are sinners. And if you don't see that, if you don't see your inclination, your tendency towards sin, that that is your nature, then you have no hope. You must first see your lost condition before God, before you can call out to him, before you can repent of your sin. If you don't see yourself as a sinner, you're on your way to hell. It's a wide road to destruction. You think you're fine. You think the problem then is with God. You think the problem is with God's laws. And why is God being not fair to you? And that is why, if you're like that, you're miserable. That is why people drink and take drugs and, and, and suppress their conscience. They suppress the truth and the righteousness. There's different ways people do it. But you must see yourself. You must know that you're a sinner. Especially a case for a lot of people who've been raised in the church. Covenant breakers who've broken off from the church never knew God. And they'll often be far worse than people who are not raised in the church. Depends on the situation, but it can be like that at times. Question 24, what is sin? And it's important that we know what sin is, not just kind of just say, oh, we're sinners, you know, like in a nebulous way, and it's not that big a deal. But sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of any law of God given as a rule to the reasonable creature. And a reasonable creature refers to either angels or men. So, and it's any want of conformity or lack of conformity, basically falling short, all fall short of the glory of God. For all of sin fall short of the glory of God. And then, or transgression of any law of God, going beyond, trans, you know, tr transgressing, going beyond, trespassing. Think of that kind of idea. Given as a rule to the reasonable creature. T question 25, wherein consisteth the sinfulness of that estate wherein two men fell? The sinfulness, uh, the answer here, the sinfulness of that estate wherein two men man fell consisted in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of that righteousness wherein he was created, and the corruption of his nature whereby he is utterly indisposed, disabled, and made a po opposite unto all that is spiritually good and wholly inclined to all evil, and that continually, which is commonly called original sin, and from which do proceed all actual transgressions. Now, let's unpack that a little bit and go through this. Wherein consisteth, question 25, the sinfulness of that estate wherein he fell. So once we fell into that sin, Adam and all he represented, his seed, which includes all of mankind, we then are sinners. We, are, we have inherited that sin nature. The sinfulness of that state wherein men fell consisted in the guilt of Adam's first sin. We've kind of covered that. The want of that righteousness, the lack, you know, the want. It's that's kind of an older way of saying that. The, the lack of that righteousness wherein he's created. So that is gone gone and 
the corruption of his nature. He's created holy and no longer holy. Now his nature is corrupted and out of that corrupt nature comes corrupted works, comes sinful works. It says in question question 25, where, whereby he is utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite unto all that is spiritually good. And this is kind of basically what it means, spiritually to be dead in trespasses and sins. You are, your inclination, your tendency, your preference, your, use a, you know, a kind of a charge word, orientation is towards sin. This is what you prefer. This is what you like. To get to give you a, an illustration of this, if you have two things in front of you and you have to pick one, one is a perfume, something that's a pleasant aroma. This is a, an illustration constantly used in the scriptures. Something that is a sweet smelling savor before the Lord. But the other thing is, imagine you open your fridge and there's milk been there for a couple of weeks. And you say, you can smell that perfume. Or you can drink that milk. And when we think of the milk, we almost feel physically sick. It's something that is revulsive to us. Now, to the unconverted man, that his, his natural inclination to feel almost spiritually sick toward the laws of God. It makes him angry because he has been made opposite unto all that is spiritually good and wholly inclined to all evil. And what's sweet, what's a sweet smelling aroma before him is not what is good. It is what is rebellious. It's why you see today people are proud about their abortions. They're proud about all sorts of things that they shouldn't be proud about because to them, that is the sweet smelling aroma. That is the Pleasant perfume, because that is what they like. That is their nature. And then that's why you need a new nature. You need to be made, you need to be born again of the spirit of almighty God. And when somebody's been born again, now sin is the thing that makes us ill. The thing that reviles us, that we don't like anymore. It is that to use the illustration, the gone off milk or whatever. And we go toward God as a pleasant aroma. He is now pleasing before us. He is now amazing to us. And you know what's also amazing? Because if we're in Christ Jesus, we are also a sweet smelling savor before him, a pleasant aroma, something God, someone God delights in because of Christ. Before we're an object of wrath, we're, we're a stench. We are a something that he will spew out of his mouth. But our nature is inclined towards sin. We see sin as pleasant. We see sin as good. While we are in our unconverted state, while we are still in Adam, every single last one, inclined to all evil and that continually, which is, this is the doctrine of original sin. This is 
originally uh, commonly called original sin, and from from which do proceed all actual transgressions. The 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 stream now is polluted, and out of that polluted stream, out of that corruption of the nature, out of that our desires, out of our inclinations, out of our whatever, come us doing actual sin. Question 26. How is original sin conveyed from our first parents unto their posterity? Answer. Original sin is conveyed from our first parents unto, unto their posterity by natural generation, so that all that proceed from them in that way are conceived and born in sin. Now, this question is actually kind of hard to, to answer in a lot of ways. The, the questions really ask, how is original sin conveyed from the first parents to their posterity in a way? How does it go from Adam to 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 Seth to all the the people that will follow on after him? Now, it is conveyed. You know, there's natural regeneration, natural um, project, but also there's a sense. So as all that proceed from them in that way are conceived, the conceived natural, but born in sin. But it's also the covenantal. There's the covenantal relationship. The only person that wasn't represented by Adam in the garden is Christ. Because he's the other federal representative. There's actually... Actually, I was reading here earlier and I was... We have... We've gotten through it a little bit faster than I expected. So I'm going to read a comment on this by J.G. Voss. And I haven't gone completely through it, but it's a very good uh, commentary on the Westminster Lar Larger Catechism. Um, it is Johannes G. Voss. I think J.G. Voss was the son of Gerhardus, the famous Gerhardus Voss. Um, question 26, he's a comment on this, talking about the inherit, what it means to inherit a sinful nature from Adam. Um, it depends on what, this is what, this is Voss speaking now. It depends on what he, we mean by the word inherit. If we mean that we are born with a sinful nature because of our connection with Adam, our first ancestor, then it is correct to say that we inherit a sinful nature from Adam. If we mean that we inherit a sinful nature as we might inherit blonde hair or tall stature, then it is not correct to say that we inherit a sinful nature from Adam. It's not like a physical thing. And I think the the understandings of this has been different throughout the the years. There's a very good book on this by J.B. Um, Fesco called uh, Dead in Adam, Life in Christ. I read a number of years ago. It's it a really good book on this topic. If you want to study more on that, it's about the doctrine of imputation. Returning to Voss's comment, while we must recognize that the problem of the transmission of original sin is a very difficult one, still it seems safe to say that the Bible does not warrant a belief that a sinful nature is transmitted by the, me by the mechanism of biological hereditary as physical characteristics are transmitted from generation to generation. Sin is a spiritual fact, not a bodily 
uh, property or characteristic. If original sin were transmitted from parent to child by biological hereditary, we would receive it from our immediate parents rather than from Adam. In that case, too, the children of believers would come into the world in a regenerate condition. It's a difficult subject. I think there's, there's variations in views. And if you read different people, you're going to get different views. And, and actually, in some systematic theologies, some don't even have an opinion on it. it just it, there's a, it happens. Um, and Adam all died. The Bible says that. That's some good men over the centuries have said this. Okay, so, but as a matter of fact, Voss says, the children of believers are born into the world dead in sin. We may conclude, therefore, A, that our sinful nature comes to us by reason of our natural birth as descendants of Adam, B, that it comes to us from Adam rather than our immediate parents, and C, that we inherit a sinful nature from Adam as a man might inherit money or property from his father or grandfather, not as a person might inherit blue eyes or brown hair from his parents. And then he recommends for fuller discussion on this um, difficult subject. Uh, refer to A. Hodge's commentary on the Confession of Faith. And I've seen a bunch of different views. I've not read A. Hodge's commentary on the Confession of Faith. Um, but J.G. Fesco goes through this in his Doctrine of Imputation because my own view, it's, it's a covenantally, because covenantally represented in Adam. They inherited covenantally as we covenantally would with Christ. We, his righteousness becomes ours by faith. But apart from that, we're in Adam and we have the sin of Adam and we also have our own sin. So hopefully that helped. Um, it's a good commentary on I haven't read, again, I haven't read all through it, but um, what I have read so far is really, really good. And uh, I think it was a, I think it was a covenanter. Anyway, so returning to our catechism, we're going to be finishing promptly, Lord willing, at the hour mark. But, so we've got another about 15 minutes. If you If you do have any questions, you can fire them off now or in the next 10 minutes just to guarantee they'll I'll answer them again if you want questions being answered go to the YouTube page uh, if you want to find my YouTube channel and you're not it, just type in the word Paul Flynn Megiddo media or films or something type in the word Paul Flynn M-E-G-I-D-D-O and it should pop up pretty much straight away in on the YouTube search Question 27, what misery did the fall bring upon mankind? Now, this is to our main theme. Misery, misery. Why is there misery in the world? There's, there's, yeah, there's a sense, as we talked earlier, there's a sense in one sense that we don't know every single specific incidence. If bad things are happening to people, you don't want to be saying that, aha, it's because you did this, this, and this. Maybe it is, but we don't know all the details. But at the same time, since the fall of Adam, that's why there is suffering in the world. That's why there is misery in the world. The fall... It, it, God did not create the world this way. He created it perfect. 
and one day in the future when Jesus returns, it will be ret- it will be returned to a state, the creation will be returned to a state of having no sin. The bondage of sin will be removed. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, or you could say a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. Question 27. What misery did the fall bring upon mankind? Answer. The fall brought upon mankind the loss of communion with God, his displeasure and curse. So as we are by nature children of wrath, bond slaves to Satan, and justly liable to all punishments in this world and that which is to come. So that's the misery we have brought upon ourselves through sin. We have sinned in Adam. So the fall brought upon mankind the loss of communion with God. So sin breaks that communion. God cannot look favorably upon a sinner. Then you say, well, how do any of us have any hope? Well, because we are clothed, those who are Christians, those who have trust in Christ, we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And we're no longer viewed as sinners. Not just having our sins washed away, that is true, we have our sins washed away, but we also have a positive righteousness, that righteousness of the perfect life Christ lived, obeying the law every point of his life, that is imputed to our account, the account of believers. So, sinners have no relationship to God except incurring, as it says here, his displeasure and curse. That's why the Bible, from the very beginning since the fall, teaches over and over again the need for a substitute, the need for someone that was an animal in the Old Testament, but to die in the place of sinners. That's what's teaching. A lamb will come to die in the place of sinners, all the way foreshadowed back to Genesis 22 with Abraham asked to, to sacrifice Isaac, his son. And what happened? Rather than Isaac having to go through it, Abraham, Abraham, don't do it. Now to know that you fear God. And what happened? God would provide a lamb. God provided. Provided, ultimately, in Christ. A substitute in the place of sinners. So, sin breaks that relationship with God. His displeasure and curse. If, if God sees a sinner, there is wrath, there is hatred, and then there is enmity on that person. You know, we've been told this whole thing about you, you love the sinner, you hate, hate the you know, what was it? The, God loves the sinner, but hates the sin. There's, a, there's some element of truth in there, but it can be misleading. God shows a love, a type of love towards sinners, those who are not converted, in allowing them to continue to breathe upon the earth. He allows rain and sunshine. He allows the blessings of this life. He shows love in that sense. Uh, theologians of old have called it the, the love of beneficence, the love of um, kind of not well-pleasing love. God does not take the light in the sinner. But God does show love 
giving food, giving gifts and good things toward sinners. But that well-pleasing love, theologians used to call it um, the love of complacency, that kind of a sweet-smelling aroma before the Lord. No. God does not love the sinner in that sense. And that's why you have passages in the, in the Psalms which talk about God hating the sinner. But it's also not right to say that God just God just hates everybody. You know, you have to make distinctions. God does show us a type of love towards all people who are still breathing upon the face of the earth. But what is being shown towards sinners in hell? His holy, the fullness of his holy fury and anger, his hatred. That's what hell is. It's and it's righteous, and it's holy, and it's just. Um. So, okay, we have a question here. What are the best resources on the role of responsibility of the civil magistrate, and what are some resources on eschatology? Whoa, you're asking a difficult one here. Um. If you ask me a couple of years ago, it changes all the time. Um. This is a question that's come in on the uh, YouTube channel. Um. It's been a long time since I have read things on things relating to the civil magistrate. But generally speaking, try and get things related to, I'm going to say this because I'm biased, uh, Reformed Presbyterians, uh, the Covenanters from the 17th century, generally speaking. And there's also men after that. Um, there's nothing quite coming to mind at the moment. The Westminster Standards. Um, and I suppose the role of the magistrate would be this. He must submit to God. And the Solemn League, the Solemn League Covenant of 1643, which was signed before the beginning of, of the Westminster standards were the very beginning of the work and then they labored on the Westminster standards after that. Really, I think it very simply puts down the role of the magistrate to be, that the, the state is to be a nursing mother toward the church. Now, it's not to, supposed to take the role of the church in administering the sacraments or, or you know, they're different spheres and things like that it, it has been sometime but i think try and get from my point of view m men who would have written around the time i suppose i've yet to go through lex rex by samuel rutherford but i imagine stuff like that is good it's not really been my area it's not been a thing that i've really struggled with personally there's always things you know we want to read more on and things like that but i think um Definitely lean towards the 17th century Covenanters, Rutherford, Gillespie, David Dixon, men like that. Um, but, you know, you're not going to really find from that era a book that says civil magistrate, only, unless it's something like Lex Rex by uh, Rutherford. Generally speaking, they were they were just preaching on it and they were going through texts and they were writing commentaries and things like that. So, um, yeah, hopefully that answers your question. And... Uh, Eschatology, then, the best book I have read on eschatology, Ian e. H. Murray, Puritan Hope. Um, and it's more from a historical point of view. I don't think it'll, it's post-millennial. 
at least Ian Murray was post-millennial back then. I don't know what his eschatological view is now. But in the Puritan hope, it basically goes through the, the, the Puritan eschatology. Um, and it's also important to point out how different it is from more modern post-millennialism. The, the post-millennialism of Owen or p other people like that. So I would recommend Ian Murray's The Puritan Hope. I haven't read it in years now. I've probably read this about seven, eight years ago. But um, excellent from the point... Again, it is more historical theology in a lot of ways. It's really pointing out what the, what, what 17th century men believed. Um, but I have not spent a whole ton of time looking through eschatology the last couple of years, if I'm, if I'm being honest. Um, so uh, hopefully that that helps, um, and hopefully that'll be a blessing to people listening. Now, let's finish off. We are almost... So did we get through... Oh, yeah. So the end of question 27, getting back to question 27, as we are by nature children of wrath, um, that's, that's, that's what we are by nature... Bond, bond slaves to Satan. We are slaves of Satan. We are not free. And justly liable to all the punishments of this world and that which is to come. Question 28. Because I'd like to get up to question 29 before finishing. And then probably in two or three weeks time, we'll probably come back to question 30. It'll probably be every second or third program. We'll do things on the catechism. If you want me to do any specific topic in the sense of maybe critiques of sermons or whatever. I can't always promise it because I don't, I'm a bit more picky what I, what I kind of cover these days. I try to stick to, try to think, is it edifying for the body? But just, if you're not sure, just send it on anyway. Miguel radio at gmail.com. M-E-G-I-D-D-O radio at gmail.com. Question 28. What are the punishments of sin in this world? The punishments of sin in this world are either inward as blindness of mind, a reprobate sense, strong delusions, hardness of heart, horror of conscience, and vile affections, or outward as the curse of God upon the creatures for our sakes, and all of the evils that befall us in our bodies, names, estates, relations, and employments, together with death itself. So, um... Let's answer this question. Let's look at the, the response to this. So the punishments of sin in this world are either inward. So there can be different punishments of sin, and they can be even in this time. It doesn't have to be in the world to come. There can be tastes of that, of the wrath of God here and now. Blindness of mind, basically spiritual blindness. You don't see that something is sinful. A reprobate sense, um, somebody who's completely lost. Strong delusions, um, hardness of heart. The more blindness you see in a society, like our society, the more you see the wrath of God. The wrath of God isn't seen around us. When you go and you see the pride parades, when you see the, the postmodern nonsense that's been spewed, by young people who are at these protests, who are angry about everything and anything, and they're victims of everyone and everything and all sorts of things. And hardness of, it's just strong delusions. And they are using their perceived, sometimes there are legitimate grievances, but usually they're only a small amount. And then 
either of these things are exacerbated and made bigger than they actually are. But these strong delusions, hardness of hearts, um, the Pope of Rome being identified in the scriptures as a strong delusion. Sadly, sent to Europe and many people believing that this person is a representative Christianity and all that when he's really not. He's the son of perdition, the man of sin. Um, hardness of heart, horror of conscience. Our conscience can become more and more seared. Um, and vile affections. Vile affections can include um, sodomy, things that are being promoted these days. That can be the punishments of sin in this world. And even if somebody's born again, regenerated the spirit of God, there can be there can be still suffering for that, even after the person has been born again. There can be the things we do in our past sometimes, and it's not to say that it's always going to be like that. If we trust in the Lord, it, it can get better. It's much better than it was before, but trust in the Lord that by God's grace you'll grow more, and there'll be more and more healing in your walk with the Lord. You're healed spiritually from the moment of conversion. You're justified, declared righteous before the Father. But at the same time, there's going to be things. If you have been involved in lifestyles like that, vile affections and all that kind of stuff, it takes time. Usually. some people, For some people, it doesn't. God sometimes takes away certain things immediately. Certain desires. I know he did with my drinking and things like that but everybody's experience is a little bit different and outward it says in question 28 as the curse of god upon the creatures for our sakes and all other evils that befall us in our bodies names estates relations and employments together with death itself so death itself is a punishment for sin why is there death in the world because of sin by the way sin's not our death is not natural death is natural death is an enemy Death will one day be conquered and be gone at the end of time when Christ returns. Um, last one, question 29. We're going to wrap up here. How are we doing for time? That's about 10 o'clock. Okay. So question 29. What are the punishments of sin in the world to come? The punishments of sin in the world to come are everlasting separation from the comforting, the comfortable presence of God. And the most grievous torments in soul and body without intermission in hellfire forever. And might not seem like an obvious place to stop. Where is the hope in that? Well, if you're listening to this and you don't know Christ, that is your future. Right there. If you don't repent and trust in Christ, that is your future. Everlasting separation from the comforting presence of God. Now... Sometimes in gospel presentations, it's like, you'll be separated from God forever. And that can be misunderstood. From the comforting presence, yes, but not from his wrath. The reason that hell is so horrible is because it is the infliction of the justice, the torment of soul and body without intermission because we deserve it all christians see that they deserve this but christ took our punishment in our place 
He took our hell. He took our t- grievous torments. He took that which we all deserve and paid the penalty in our place. And he also fulfilled the law of God. And so if you don't know him, you're listening to this, you're just curious about what does this Christian say about sitting in misery and all this kind of stuff. If there's misery in your life, it is because of sin. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. But have you trusted Christ? Have you turned from your sin and placed your trust, your hope in Christ? I pray that you do. And I pray that you do today. It's been Paul Flynn. May God bless you all.